Welcome to the weekly podcast of Trinity Life Church. We are a local church that gathers in downtown Toronto on Sundays and all throughout our city during the week. Now our mission is to help people discover their identity and destiny in Christ so we can influence our city, our country, and our world. If you're looking for a place to call home, we'd love to have you. Our services are Sunday from 10.30 to noon at Jarvis Collegiate. Enjoy this week's podcast. Scripture reading is out of Acts this morning. Uh, Sorry, the program is incorrect there, but uh, scripture reading is actually out of Acts 17, but you can follow along on the screen as, as I read Acts 17, starting in verse 22. It says, Then Paul stood in front of the Areopagus and said, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands, nor is he served by human human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath, and all things. From one ancestor, he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live, so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as even some of your own poets have said, For we too are his offspring. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. While God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent, because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this, he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. When they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some scoffed, but others said, we will hear you again about this. At that point, Paul left them, but some some of them joined him and became believers, including Dionysius the Areopagite with a woman named Damaris and others with them. So welcome back to the practice of presence. Our summer series is about how the different spiritual disciplines that we can use and take part in in order to grow closer to God and closer to other people. Uh, We've talked about silence and solitude. We've talked about serving. And today we're taking a little bit of a step forward and we're talking about sharing your faith or evangelism. I didn't hear any cheers for that, understandably. (laughs) We're not really excited about this often. Uh, When I was preparing for this, I decided to take a little search online and see what the current articles and things and what people were saying about evangelism. And I came across so many articles that were like, 10 steps to sharing your faith, four ways to talk to atheists, uh, the biblical method for evangelism. And the list just kept going. And... There are two things that I kind of learned from this. One, we really like lists. 
We like easy steps that we can follow and instructions. And we kind of feel like, you know, if we have these steps that everything will go perfectly, we'll, you know, we'll follow step one, two, three, four, five, and when we end, there will be a brand new shiny Christian in front of us. Uh, but sharing your faith is a lot more like buying something from Ikea. So you, you get your instructions, you start following them, you get through one, two, three, and then they ask you a question. They're like, what about suffering? What about all of the evil that's happening in the world? And then you're standing there looking around, it's like, where's this piece? You're flipping through your Bible, like, I know there's something in here, but you can't find it. So you're like, um, oh, we'll just deal with that later. Well, hopefully it's not important. So you keep building it, you keep putting things together, and you have something that resembles a table at the end of it. And you really hope that it's structurally sound enough to survive. The other thing that I learned uh, is that we, we've created an us versus them mentality when it comes to this. We've separated us as Christians from them who are outside of the church. A couple years ago, there was a movie that came out called God's Not Dead. Um, in this movie, it's about a young guy who goes to university and ends up in a philosophy class where the professor is an atheist who wants everybody to believe that God is dead and doesn't exist. Now, when they showed this movie at a lot of churches and conferences across the country, people started booing this person. They turned this professor into the enemy. And I think that's so wrong. We've created all of these other cultures, all of these other beliefs into the enemy that we need to overcome. We're not like them, they're different than us. And we need to bring them onto our side so they can survive and we'll win. So these are the two things that I realized when I was looking at what people think about evangelism right now. And I think they're so sad. It's so sad that we've limited evangelism to a set of five easy steps. And we've limited evangelism to just talking to somebody who is not like us. And I want to kind of address some of those and a couple other things today. Now, evangelism and sharing your faith are really interesting topics in the church. And what I mean by this is that despite being so central to our faith, despite us all knowing the Great Commission, you know, we know that we're supposed to go out and tell people about our faith. We believe that it's the truth and we hold this dearly, but we don't really do it. We have it in our head, but we don't let it reach our hands. You know, some people take this a little step further. Uh, there was a study done a couple years ago where they found out that 47% of millennials and roughly 40% of Christians altogether believe that sharing your faith with the purpose of converting the other person is unethical. It's wrong to do. Now, some people are shocked at this statistic. Some people are shocked that people would believe this, but I kind of understand it. You know, we've grown up in our multicultural society where not only have we seen the atrocities of Christianity, we have people in our country, people who we interact with, who have been hurt by the church that we call home. I've interacted with several First Nations communities, and you can't ignore the fact that in the name of the gospel and in the name of evangelism, Christians have destroyed these people. Not only that, but we can walk through the city, we walk through Young Dundas, we walk down Church Street, and we see people standing there with signs saying that you're all sinners and you're all going to hell. 
And we think that both of these things are so wrong. So the, it's not that Christians are against evangelism. It's the fact that most Christians now are aware that evangelism has hurt people, and we're not okay with that. So we live in this tension. We live in this strange place where we believe that we should share our faith. We believe that's important for us to do so because we've recognized and we've experienced the saving power of Jesus, but we also don't want to hurt people. We also don't want to go out and tell people that they're evil and they're wrong and destroy everything of who they are. Now, some of you, myself, kind of want a nice, easy answer of, like, how can we do this? How can we tell people about Jesus without actually hurting them? And there is no easy answer. There is no five-step program to evangelism that's going to work every single time. If you're looking for this answer, you won't find it here. It's complex. And all we can do, all I'm going to try and do, all we're going to do this morning is start a discussion about this tension, start a discussion about how we do this. We're going to talk to each other, we're going to talk to each other, we're going to talk to God about how we can go forward humbly and what is the proper and the healthy way of bringing people into relationship with us, with our faith, with our church, and with the kingdom of God. So that's what we're going to do today. In a passage today, we're following Paul as he enters a new city. He enters a new context and he begins interacting with people that he has never met before. Hopefully, as we go through the story, we'll gain some amount of insight about this tension and about the struggle of evangelism in our church and in our culture. And we'll gain some insight about God's heart and his call to reach people and to love people. So I know that we're supposed to start at verse 22, but I'm going to take a step back to verse 16. Uh, So before this, Paul was in a city called Berea, and he was with his crew, he was with all the people, uh, Timothy and Silas, and he was preaching in the synagogues and the temples and the markets, but then people in the city didn't really like that very much, so they uh, caused some trouble and they tried to push him out. And then the body of believers in the city decided that it was safer for Paul to leave for, for their safety and for his. So he leaves, um, but Timothy and Silas stay behind to be with the believers there. And that's where we pick up in verse 16. So Paul has just arrived in Athens. He's alone. There's no body of believers there. There's no church. His friends aren't with him. And he has to figure out what he's going to do. So verse 16, while Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was deeply distressed to see that the city was full of idols. One verse in, and I'm going to stop already. When Paul's in a new city all by himself, he didn't have anybody to help him or anybody to back him up or rely on. He got to Athens, and he had to figure out things on his own. I don't know how many of you have traveled on your own, but it's this different level of you can't just... You're not discussing with people what to do. You have to figure everything out by yourself. You get to a city and you're standing in the train station like, where now? What do I do now? 
Um, no, if that was me, I'd be like, well, I'm just going to go to the hotel and sleep because I've just been on a 10-hour train ride and I don't need to worry about anything else. Or I'm going to go get some food because, who am I kidding, that's why I travel is to eat. <laughs> I think that's why we all travel. Now, Paul doesn't do this. When he got to the new city, he started going around and he was attentive to the city and he was attentive to how God was moving there. See, Paul was present. I can't speak in the Practice of Presence series without talking about what it means to be present in this context. Paul was present, and he got to the city, and he was listening to God, so he started walking around, and he was present to the people there that he passed by. And he was present to the salespeople and the markets and the stalls, and he was present to the art and the architecture, and he was present to what God was doing in himself and what God was doing in the city. And when he feels this, when he's present, he begins to feel as God felt about this city. He began to feel how God was moving him and how God was moving other people here to go closer to God. So he's walking around present and he sees all these idols. He sees these temples and his heart breaks for these people because he knows the truth and he knows that what they're doing is not bringing them closer to it. He sees as God sees. How would Paul react if he were to be present to God in our city? If Paul arrived, well, he would, of course, be freaked out because it's 2,000 years later and everything is different. But if Paul was a modern person, how would he react? How would God move Paul hard as he was present to the people and the culture that we are? Would God show him the idolatry of consumerism? Would God show him the people who our society has forgotten and pushed aside? Would God cause Paul's heart to break for the vast amount of people who had walked by him and had not had the opportunity to experience Jesus. How does God move your heart as you walk around our city? Are you present to the people and the culture of the world around us? Are you present to God in this moment? So being present to God and the city, Paul responds in the best way that he knows how, which is not how I would have responded. I get to a new city, I'm like perfectly content to just walk around and explore. That's what I want to do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go to the markets, I'm going to go to the museums, I'm going to go to different places. I'm not going to talk to people, though. That's my nightmare. But Paul does it. He goes around and explores, but then he's like, do you know what I'm going to do now? I'm going to go to the synagogues and the markets, and I'm just going to go talk to people. I don't understand. Well, I know why he does it. I don't want to do it, though. He interacts with all these different people of the city, going where God is calling him and speaking to those who will listen. So picking up the story in verse 18, um, Paul starts talking to Epicurean and Stoic philosophers, which were two different schools of philosophy in the time. 
Um, and some said, what does this babbler want to say? Others said, he seems to be proclaimer of foreign divinities. Uh, these were two things that were common in that time. People would come in as pretending to be philosophers and just start speaking all these words and trying to gain a following. So they're wondering if this is Paul, just somebody who's trying to make a quick buck so people would pay him to tell them how to think. Uh, it was also popular for people to come into the city and tell them about all these new gods that they could experience. Uh, but this wasn't really allowed in their culture. You had to get a new divinity approved by the council. So in response to Paul saying all these things, it says that they took him and brought him to the Oropagus. Uh, so the Oropagus, if you're not aware, it was this giant out, rocky outcropping in the middle of Athens. And it acted as sort of a, of a, it was a courtroom. Uh, they had murder trials there, and they had various other trials. So they were hearing all of the things that Paul was saying to them, and they put him on trial for it. Like, what is this new stuff that you're telling us? We need to know more to know if it's acceptable to know if we can believe in it. So they brought him up to the Oropagus and they say, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. It sounds rather strange to us, so we would like to know what it means. And then Paul stands there. He's been brought up to this hill to give a defense and an explanation for his beliefs. And he says, Athenians, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. Do you see what Paul is doing here? He comes up to these people and he says, I see how extremely religious you are in every way. For as I went through the city and looked carefully at the objects of your worship, I found among them an altar with the inscription to an unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you. Do you see what Paul is doing here? Now most people read this and it's like, well, he's interacting on their level. But it's not just that. It's not just that he's interacting on their level, which he is. It's that he's finding a way to lift them up. He's not starting with acknowledging their sin and proclaiming condemnation and judgment on them. How many of you have heard of the Romans Road? I'm sure a lot of you have. It's a, for those who don't know, it's a common evangelical tool of, I think it started as four verses, now it's up to five or six, uh, verses in Romans that are meant to lead people to faith or share the gospel. Uh, for those of you who know it, you know that it start, often starts with Romans 3.23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We're often told that the best way to start with sharing our faith is to start by telling people about their sin. We're told that the best way to tell people about God is to tell people that they are sinful so that they're willing to accept the saving power of God. I've been to many even evangelism training seminars where this is exactly what we're told. In one of my old Bibles, I even had a drawing in the front of that classic Christian image of there's a gap, you're on this side, God's on this side, you can't cross it, the cross does. Really cheesy, and I don't carry that Bible anymore. 
Well, this might work with some people, and this, it has worked because it's so popular. Like, there's a recognition that has affected people. And there are people who need to realize how broken they are. I don't think that we should start like this. I don't think that we should start with sin. Because Paul doesn't start with sin. Jesus doesn't start with sin. I don't find really many examples of people actually starting by telling people that they're distant from God. So let's go on a little bit of a journey right now, and I'll kind of offer an explanation of this. Uh, So in Matthew, the first time that Jesus speaks in public is Matthew 5, and it's the Beatitudes. The first time he speaks, he's pronouncing blessing on people, telling them of the ways, the countercultural ways that they can be blessed. Moving on to the Gospel of Mark, the first thing that Jesus does is he says, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. So he does say repent. That is part of the message. But he doesn't start with it. He starts by pronouncing that the kingdom of God, the reign of God, has started. And then, after they have realized this, after they have understood of the goodness of what has come about, then he brings in repentance. The message starts with hope. As Jesus is proclaiming the coming of the kingdom of God, which is a beautiful, wonderful, and hopeful thing. The kingdom cannot be separated from a call to repentance, but the proclamation of the kingdom does not start with it. It starts with the reign of God. Moving on to the next gospel in Luke. The first thing that Jesus says, he's he's born, he's baptized, there's the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, And then the first time he speaks in public, the start of his ministry, is when he gets back to his hometown of Nazareth and he goes into the synagogue and he's given a scroll to read from. So he goes up to the front, he rolls out the scroll of Isaiah and he starts reading, he says, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives, recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. His ministry, everything that he starts with, it's not sin and condemnation. It's about telling people that they can be healed. It's about telling people that they can be free. It's about proclaiming that the Lord has come to bestow favor on the nation of Israel and all people who are hearing him. He starts his ministry with a proclamation of hope for all those who have none. Finally, we're going to go to the Gospel of John. So this one starts. um, John has this beautiful introduction, which if you haven't read, you should. And then the first thing that Jesus says is when some other disciples of another person came up to him and started asking him about his ministry and his life. 
And they ask him, where are you staying? And he says three simple words. Come and see. The first thing that Jesus says in this narrative is an invitation to experience the goodness of everything that's going to come about. And then after this, after he, this part, the first actual story of Jesus is the wedding at Cana. So him and his disciples are invited to this wedding, um, and the wedding runs out of wine. And Jesus is just sitting there, and they come up to him and it's like, hey, do something. I don't really know what they expected. So he does do something. He doesn't say anything. But he gets these giant jars of water, and he turns it into wine. The wedding had run out of wine. Our world has run out of wine. And Jesus comes into the story, and he takes something mundane. He takes water, and he turns it into the best. And he turns it into an abundant amount of wine that everybody can experience. So in this story, Jesus starts his ministry with an invitation to experience the abundance of joy that is available in him. In all these stories, he starts by invitation. He starts by blessing. He starts with abundance and hope. He does not start with sin. He does not start with condemnation. Ultimately, Jesus starts his ministry with himself. Most of us know John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he sent his only son, that whosoever believes in him may not perish but have eternal life. But how many of us go on to the next verse? John 3.17, which says, Indeed, God did not send the son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. The message of Jesus is not one of condemnation, It's not a message of sin and brokenness. It's a message of hope and salvation and blessing. And Paul knows this. So he starts his speech not by condemning the Athenians for their idolatry. We know that he has recognized the sin in their lives because we're told of it. We know that he has seen their idols. He knows that he has seen their temples and their practices and everything that has taken them away from God. And this hurts Paul. This hurts God. But he doesn't start his interaction with these people by telling them about all of the things that they've done wrong. He tells them that there is hope. He tells them that I know you have been searching for so long. I know that you've been searching, and you're just trying to cover everything because you know that there's something more out there You've created all of these different temples and idols and all these things to cover your bases, to make sure that you're worshiping the right God. And you've even gone to the point where you created this altar to everything else that you haven't created an altar to. It's an altar to the unknown God. You're covering your bases. I know you're doing this. I know you're religious and you're devout. And I want to offer you the fact that You don't need to keep searching. Today I want to tell you, and this is what Paul is telling them, today I want to tell you that I know this thing that you are searching for. I know of the God that you have been trying to reach for so long. 
reaching around in the dark. And I just want to tell you that you need to keep reaching. He's just a little bit further. He is so close. He is here, and you can know him right now. Paul does not start his speech by telling them how bad and evil and wicked they are. He starts by telling the truth of everything they've been searching for. You see, when we start with sin, when we start by telling the other person that they are sinful and broken, then we are starting by condemning them. Pushing the other person down with the weight of the sin and the guilt and the shame that is experienced with it. When you do this, when we condemn and crush people in this way, then they build walls. They get defensive and they break down. But when we start by recognizing the good of the other person, recognizing the good in the world and the goodness of God, then we lift the other person up, clearing away the debris of shame and ignorance and longing and making room in their life for Christ to be revealed and his goodness to be known. People do not need help to, be, to know that they are broken. People do not need help to know that there is brokenness and harm done by people. What people need, what we all need, is to know that there is hope beyond this brokenness. We start with sin, and we start with what is evil and opposite of God. And God's story does not start with this. God's story does not start with sin and destruction. It starts with creation. It starts with God creating something good and beneficial for himself and for us. You know, Paul knows the story. Paul knows the story of creation and how the narrative of his faith and humanity has come about. And this is how he, after introducing the Athenians to their, the longing that they have, this is how he introduces God to them. Uh, starting in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, he who is Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in shrines made by human hands. Paul is introducing the glory and the power of God starting with the beginning of God's beautiful story. And then he continues. Uh, where was I? He does not live in shrines made of human hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all mortals life and breath and all things. So Paul is standing in front of these people, and he is telling them the God that you are searching for the God that I worship, he is not just a God. He's not just a God among all of these ones that you already worship. He's the God. He's the creator. He's the one who gives life and everything to all people. In most cultures, the creator God is the one who is at the top. He's the most powerful one. He's the one who's deserving of worship and respect. So when Paul comes in, he says, the God that I worship, the one that you're searching for, He's at the top. He's the one that you want to worship. He's the one who's created and given life. And then I want you to imagine this. So Paul's standing up there in this hill, 
surrounded by these Greeks, and he looks out into the distance, and he sees the temple of Hephaestus, and then he sees the temple of Zeus, and then the temple of Pan, and then another temple, and then another temple, and then another temple. As he keeps going around, he sees the Acropolis and the Parthenon, and he sees the temples of Poseidon and Athena. And all of these temples were covered in carvings and statues and gold. The whole city was just full of them. And he's looking out, telling them, what are you doing? All of these temples that you've created, the God that I'm telling you doesn't live in them. In the, in the Parthenon, there's reported that there used to be a statue of Athena that was around 40 feet tall, made of gold and ivory. So I imagine Paul standing there, and as he's talking to this, this group of people in front of him, he sees the reflection off of this gold in this temple in the distance. And it catches his eye, and he tells the people, the God that I'm telling you about, he does not live in statues, he does not live in temples, and the sacrifices that you keep offering these statues, believing that you're feeding them and gaining their blessing, the God that I'm telling you about doesn't need those, doesn't want those. He's not reliant on your worship and your sacrifices because he's bigger than that. Paul is subverting the entire religious system that they've set up in this moment. But he's not doing it by telling them about how wrong they are. He's not doing it by telling them you're evil and your system is evil because you worship these things that aren't God. He's subverting the religious system by telling them about God, by telling them that, he is, that God is bigger and more powerful than anything that they worship. And it's at this point, after giving the people hope and introducing the powerful and almighty God who subverts human religious systems, that Paul gets to the focal point of his speech as he introduces them to the possibility of having a personal relationship with God. In verse uh, 26 to 28, he writes... Or not, he writes, he says, From one ancestor he made all nations to inhabit the whole earth, and he allotted the times of their existence and the boundaries of the places where they would live so that they would search for God and perhaps grope for him and find him, though indeed he is not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we too are his offspring. So Paul has been building to this point. He started with the ignorance of the people. Then he moved into idolatry and how God is bigger than that. And then he gets to this point where he starts a central aspect, the central message of what he's telling them is that we can have a relationship with this God. We can personally find and know him and grow close to him. He 
He's not one of the distant deities that you have around your city who you can't know, but you keep sacrificing your animals and your earnings to. This God you can know, and he loves you, and he wants to know you. He's created the line of history so that one day you can get to this point and you can know him and you can experience him. This is the point of Paul's speech. The central aspect of his message to these people and the central aspect of his faith is not that humans are sinful, that the world is broken, It's not even that humans are good and the world is good. It's that God is good and you can know him. From here, after introducing the center of his speech, Paul continues by working backwards, but doing it in a way that addresses the people in front of him. He starts again with idols, moving towards human ignorance. In verse 29, Paul talks about the idolatry of the people again. Since we are God's offspring, we ought not to think that the deity is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of mortals. He brings it back to the people, addressing the idolatry that they have in their lives, telling them how the choices that they have made have taken them further away from God and not closer. Just as a side note, when Paul says that we are children and because of that, the deities of gold and silver and stone are not like God, he's referencing us being made in the image of God. That's what he's talking about. In Genesis, when it talks about us being made in the image of God, the word that is used for image is the same word that is used throughout the Old Testament for graven image, an idol. So when God says that we'll create them in our own image, he's saying that we will create them as our representation on earth. Or as my representation on earth. See, people made graven images, people made idols as a representation of God. Believing that the deity that it represented was actually in it, and it had powers and could do things for them. So when God makes us in, our, in his own image, we can understand that he is saying that he chose us to be a physical representation of who he is. God created us to show himself to the world. So when Paul writes that we are children of God, And therefore, we do not need to create idols to worship. What he's saying is that God has already created his image in us. Not so that we can worship each other, but that it is through this image, through the divine reality, that we can know him and be known by him. Nothing that is created by human hands will ever properly represent who God is or give a full connection to God, because God has already revealed himself in humanity, specifically through Jesus, who is the full and complete image of God in our world. Paul then continues. 
by addressing the longing and the searching that he started his speech with. Verse 30, while God has overlooked the times of human ignorance, now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will have the world judged in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. So he starts his speech with, you do not know him, but you're searching for him. And he ends with, you do not know him, but now is the time that you can. Now is the time to recognize that you need and desire and can be in a relationship with God. And now is the time to choose that. He doesn't leave it open-ended. He says, now is the time to make a choice. Which way are you going to go? Earlier, we looked at Mark, uh, where Jesus calls people to repentance, but only after developing a sense of hope within them. So how are we to deal with this huge topic of sin? Now, Paul calls people to repentance. Jesus calls people to repentance. And from what we've seen, it doesn't really fit at the beginning of the story, but where does it fit? Because sin is real. We all know that. We all know that there's brokenness in people. Paul addresses this sin and this need for repentance, but he doesn't do so in a way that condemns people. He does so in a way that offers an option out of it. He does not pronounce judgment on them. He explains how what they are doing is wrong, but he doesn't force them to acknowledge this. To bring this all to a close, I want us to look at another story where Jesus interacts with a woman who is sinful. And how and I want us to look at how he addresses this and how he brings hope to her. So John 8, starting at verse 2. If you have a Bible, turn there on your screen. Sorry, trying to find. Uh, no. John 7:36. I had that wrong. One of the Pharisees asked Jesus to eat with him, and he went to the Pharisee's house and took his place at the table. No, that's not the right story either. Where did this go? Yeah, John 8. How did that miss? Where did that Working on it. I'll be there shortly. Found it. <laughs> Early in the morning, he came again to the temple, and all the people came to him, and he sat down and began to teach them. The scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman who had been caught in adultery, and making her stand before all of them, he said to them, Teacher, this woman has caught in the very act of committing adultery. Now in the law of Moses, commanded us to stone such women. Now what do you say? And they said this to test him, so that they might have some charge to bring against him. 
And Jesus bent down and he wrote with his finger on the ground. And when they kept on questioning him, he straightened up and said to them, let anyone among you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And once again, he bent down and wrote on the ground. And when they heard it, they went away. One by one, beginning with the elders. And Jesus was left alone with this woman, standing before him. And Jesus straightened up, and he said to her, Woman, where are they? Has no one condemned you? She said, No one, sir. And Jesus responded, Neither do I condemn you. Go your way. From now on, do not sin again. Neither do I condemn you. Jesus has the opportunity here to condemn her. He has the opportunity to tell her of all the things that she's done wrong because he knows them. We know from other stories that he does have a knowledge of these things. But he doesn't do this. Instead, in this moment, Jesus saves her. He saves her from the crowd that desired to focus on her sin more than who she was. And he saves her from the weight of the guilt and the shame that she was carrying around with her. He saves her and then he says to her, where are they? Where are the people who would only see your sin and had a desire to condemn you? They're no longer here. There is no one here who looks at you and only sees sin and condemnation. It's just you and me. And I love you. And you're now free. You're free from the condemnation and free from the bondage of sin that has held you for so long. I don't know where many Christians get the idea that the best way to talk to others about Jesus is to tell them that they're sinful. Because I don't see it. I don't see it in here. And I don't see it in the life of Jesus. And I don't see it in the life of Paul or anywhere else. I don't find an instance of Jesus focusing on the sin of the person more than the hope that he is offering them. I don't see him withholding hope and blessing and healing and freedom until a person has acknowledged their sin and repented from them. I don't see Jesus doing this at all. The message of Jesus, the good news, is that hope and freedom are already here. And sharing our faith is letting people know that they can experience it. Sharing our faith means taking part in the mission of Christ and bringing hope and healing and freedom to those who need it. It's not about putting a spotlight on sin. It's about putting a spotlight on Christ. We're called to introduce people to Jesus. And once he is there, once they know him and have experienced him, at that point, when they are confronted by the holiness of the Son of God, he'll do the rest. It's not our job to tell people that they're broken. Because when they meet God, when they meet Christ, 
We all know it. We don't need extra help on that one. Today we've started a discussion talking about what it looks to bring the good news of Jesus to other people. Talking about what it looks like to be good witnesses of our faith and welcome people into relationship with Jesus in order to be members of the kingdom of God. Now, I don't know all the answers. I've already said that. I don't know the best way to talk to every single person because every situation is different. Every person here is different and has experienced God in slightly different ways. And every person that you meet outside of here will be different and will be spoken to to by God in different ways. But what I do know is this. The one thing that brings us and all people together and brings us into relationship with Christ and the one thing that I know is that sharing our faith is about being present to the work and the movement of God in our lives and in the world. And it's allowing God to direct us to where people need him. Sharing our faith is about acting and speaking in a way that allows God to be present and allows him to be known. So do this. Share your faith. Be present and show God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this opportunity when we get to speak about you and your glory. I just pray for all the people in here that you will give them confidence and you will help them to know that you are king and that you bring healing and hope and blessing into our lives. And I just pray that this realization will affect us and will allow us to be better witnesses to what you've already done and are doing here. Let's pray this all in your name. Amen. So we're now going to enter a time of response. We're going to enter a time of experiencing Christ. On the night before he was betrayed, Jesus was meeting with his disciples and he took, the, he took bread. And he says, this is my body, broken for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he says, this is the blood of my covenant poured out for you. Eat this in remembrance of me. He was giving blessing and hope for them. So when you're ready, come and experience this. I said, when you're ready, you file into the front and come up and take the bread and the cup and experience the blessing and the hope of Christ in your life. If you want to know more about the TLC community, check out trinitylife.ca or you can find us on Facebook. Of course, we'd way rather meet you in person, so we hope to see you at a service soon.